my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Dylan Sessler. He is a mental health coach, professional speaker, podcast host of The Dylan Experience. He's an entrepreneur, combat veteran, and author of the book, Defy the Darkness, a story of suicide, mental health, and overcoming your hardest battles. In January of 2020, Dylan began speaking on TikTok about mental health and trauma. By 2022, he has accumulated more than half a million followers, supporting his daily content centered around having a realistic conversation about things like mental health, abuse, trauma, self-harm, and suicide. His relentless pursuit has allowed him to impact the lives of millions while also developing a platform to help society rethink human connection and mental health. With that, I want to thank you, Dylan, welcome you to the show and, and just tell you, I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to have this conversation with me and really thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, it's pretty impressive, man, and and uh, I can't wait to dig into this conversation. So thank you. I I would also say thank you to having me on and and just making this opportunity available to people like myself. So yeah, thank you, Dave. I know you're in Wisconsin. Is that where you were born and raised? Yep, Janesville, Wisconsin. Nice. And uh, I'm only really familiar with like Milwaukee, Waukegan you know, the Finnemore, yeah. I know that little town, where, whereabouts is, is your town? So I was, I was born and raised in Janesville, which is like central South Wisconsin. It's right on the border, near the border of Illinois. Um, but I've, I now live right next to Milwaukee. I live in Brookfield, Wisconsin now. Um, and that's where I imagine I'll be staying for quite some time with my, my wife's son and soon to be daughter. Uh, congratulations on that june you said right yep june 8th is her due date nice well gemini's are the best yeah june 12th is my birthday i so. said fair enough fair enough <laughs> um yeah man and i my daughter she's 15 and i i have one child and for you know for most of my adult life when when kids were you know, on the table, I knew that I wanted a son. And then I had a daughter. And uh, that whole view changed, man, I, I am blown away with just how amazing she is. And it's completely different dynamic. So yeah, yeah man, congratulations on that. You're gonna you're gonna love being the father to a little girl. I, you know, my, my story will will probably reveal this but for for much of my life I never thought I'd even get to a point where I'd have a, a wife let alone having a, a child of my own and so it's I didn't really honestly care what I had I just am so so grateful to have something to have someone and, and my wife and I for for some context have had three miscarriages prior to this and so it was a uh, it was a difficult battle to get to here, um, you know, to, to even feel like where we are now if she's, she's only six weeks away at the, the time we're recording this. And so it's such a, it's still like, even with those, those miscarriages, it's like, is she really going to make it there? You know, like we're still there, there's still that kind of emphasis on, we're not sure yet. And we're, we're always hoping for the best, but having having miscarriages as a couple is so, you know, it's brutal because you, it just takes away at times some of the, some of the beauty of, 
you know, of the pregnancy of the, of the journey to get to where she comes and, and we get to meet her. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't wait really, you know, I can't wait to have, have that child in my hands and just see that she's real, you know, and, and to, to really kind of wrap up and a really incredible story, I think of how I've gotten to where I am now to see that little child in my hands is going to be, a, I mean, just the, just a, a incredibly beautiful moment in my life. Let's just dig in, man. Um, yeah. So you were born and raised in, you said Janestown or Jamestown? Janesville. Janesville. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Janesville, Wisconsin. And is that rural, like cow country, cheese making Wisconsinites? Or? <laughs> Probably as close as you can get. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up so for the first first six years of my life, I was in I was in just like central Janesville, right? It's a town of 40, 50,000. Um, and then when I was six years old, my my dad passed away from suicide. Um, and that kind of changed, you know, obviously changed the trajectory of my life. And I we we ended up staying there for a little while. And then um, as my mom kind of moved on, she she found a, another man a couple of years later that we moved to. Uh, a place called Johnstown Center that wasn't far outside of Janesville. Um, but then we moved school districts to a, a town called Milton. And that is for sure cow country. You know, like that's right outside of Janesville. It's a town of like 5,000 or at the time it was. And we lived in, we lived on a horse ranch. Um, and so that, that man specifically was, uh, I think, an integral piece of who I became. Um, not necessarily for a good reason. Um, so when I was, you know, after my dad died, I was, I was kind of stuck in this position of, I felt responsible because at, at that young age, you really don't know what you are responsible for. You don't know how to take that responsibility or give it away. Um, and so I felt guilty. I felt shameful of what my dad, what my dad did, because that's what I was told to think. Um, you know, and back then it was the, the, conceptualization of suicide was often taught to be you're going to hell, right? Um, so that's what I was taught. So I felt this shame, I felt this regret for for not stopping him, I felt this guilt for not being the one to step in front of him and say, you can't go. Um, and so that that kind of stuck with me. And it, it and it kept me very silent in my life. Um, and then when this, when this man entered, he had a very specific style of discipline that that made me endure pain uh, on a level that just was was completely unhealthy. Um, you know, when when I did something wrong, so we lived on a horse ranch. I had a lot of things I could do wrong. Um, he would he would hit me from the small of my back all the way down to my calves with a you know three quarter inch leather belt, um, one of those Western style you know. It's a cowboy belt if you if you want to make it simple, um, and that's how I was disciplined, right? For anything, you know, it wasn't whether it's was a small infraction or a big infraction. It was just how many hits was I going to take for that infraction, um, and that really, you know, partnered with as I look back now, partnered with that enormous traumatic event that happened with me and my dad. That taught me to take all of my pain and just mask it, you know, it, it just forced it inside. And I, I remember, I, I, I couldn't tell you the date, but I remember the day I stopped crying when he hit me. I remember the day I, I would turn around and I would look at him when he hit me and I would, I would think to myself, hit me again, right? And, and, and almost, almost want that pain because I felt like I deserved it in a, in a sense. Um, and that, that became this habit of, throughout my life, I can look back and see like, you know, even my military career, I can see that like, I'm willing to go and say, let's do it again. Let's, let's take on that pain. Let's take on that hurt. And in some regards, that's been beneficial for me, but in many regards, it was also quite dangerous. Right. And it put me in, in specific places that I'll get to that I didn't almost come out of. Um, and so after, after that kind of 
situation panned out, ultimately my mom found out that that's how he reacted to, to disciplining me. Um, she never knew. She never knew. That's That was the interesting thing is that when he abused me, it was without my mother's attention. She wasn't there. She wasn't around. And so I, you know, I look back now and I recognize that because every time I would be done being hit, I would go straight to my room and no one was there. Right now I kind of like think back and I'm like, this man was doing it without any regard or respect for my mother's permission, you know, and now I'm a, I'm a stepfather. And I, for one, I could never imagine hitting my, my son, right? I call him my son, but he's my stepson. I, he's just mine. Um, but I would never imagine hitting him. And two, I would never imagine having a conversation, you know, not having a conversation with my wife about how to discipline him in any way, right? Because I want her, you know, permission to be a part of it, right? Because one, he's not mine, but even though, even that, it's, <clears throat> it's this necessity for, I think, men and women to have this coordinated support for each other and also this, you know, this ability to withhold each other, right? I can be intense, right? So can my wife. And so it's, it's so important for us to be partners in this to say, you, you know, Dylan, maybe you're, maybe you're going a little bit too far. Maybe you're stepping into this too hard, you know, and maybe you're being a little bit hard on him. And I think that's so important as parents to be able to do that. And I never saw that because this man overstepped his boundaries and, and did what he thought was right. And I think, you know, throughout my life, that has stuck with me. Um, and that's why I've become, I think, as eloquent as I am at connecting with people and, you know, helping people understand themselves. And it's, it's been a really interesting kind of journey through, you know, TikTok and writing my book and, you know, all of these podcast episodes that I'm both on and I, I record myself to learn about that ability and kind of where it comes from. And I always kind of, it always kind of brings me back to that moment of understanding there's a lot of information there that sometimes I've overlooked, you know, this is, this is a newer idea that I've come to, to understand. And, you know, you said it yourself before we really got into this, it's never ending process, right? And it's, it's, it's important to understand that is that just because you think you're right, doesn't mean you are right about it because the human experience is so complex and that we just have, I just think we have so many experiences that we don't know how to give credit to, or we forget. And it's, it's so diverse to, to try and understand. So at what point in your life were you able to move out of that situation with your stepfather and um, I guess maybe lead into how you ended up in, in the military? We, we left, I, I think some, somewhere in middle school. So 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. Um, Cause I think, I, I think I remember in like eighth grade was probably around the time when we moved to Milton, like proper um, and actually moved like within town. Um, and so we, we moved into that town and stepped away from that situation. And that's when my mom became, you know, single mom and, working mom and college mom, you know, she was, she was doing all the things and we were, you know, you know, kind of taking care of ourselves, me and my sister. And that was, that was a time in my life where I kind of became really independent, really focused on, you know, taking on the world myself and learning all I can about the world, you know, stepping into friendships and, you know, for the first time, really, because Johnstown, Johnstown Center was very, isolating. I had very few friends there, you know, and I, I, you know, maybe I had a couple of guys that I could play with every once in a while, but there were no real, you know, emotionally connecting friends. I would say it was, Hey, do you want to go run around in the woods for a little bit? And then our parents would call us back in that that was about it for my friendships out there. It was just so far outside of the realm of people, you know, we only had what 80, 80 to 100 people in that town at any given moment. Um, so it was a very small town. And I was alone 
for most of that time. And so when I, when I moved to Milton, it was a very different experience. I had people, you know, I had friends, I had a friend right next door and we, you know, we hit it off and, and that's where I met my, my best friend, Chris. Um, he's my best man at my wedding. Um, and I started having conversations, I think for the first time in high school. Um, but I never, I never had conversations about the things I really truly deeply thought about and things like suicide, right? My dad's suicide. And ultimately that led me to think about my own suicide, which was, which was something I refused to do because of what my dad did. And so ultimately my reasoning for joining the military came, you know, strictly from that idea. Um, I wanted to die. You know, there was, there was this un unending feeling of, I, I didn't want to deal with the shame. I didn't want to deal with the guilt. I didn't want to fight anymore. Um, I didn't want to, you know, feel this stuff anymore, try to process it. I didn't even know what processing was back then. Um, and ultimately, it came to a point of, I wouldn't do it myself. So what's the next best way? Well, there's a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the infantry just felt like the right thing to do. So it was the most, I guess, honorable thing at the time. And that's what I chose. Um, and from that point on, I joined the military, went to basic training, came home and tried to jump on every deployment that I could. I, I missed out on four or five deployments. They just, you know, didn't call me back or didn't pick me. Um, and then I got one in 2011, uh, 2012 is when we left. Um, and that's when I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 2012. You mentioned before we started recording that um, you became a sniper. Mm -hmm. Was that before or after that first trip to Afghanistan? So that was actually recently. It was last year that I, I joined the, the sniper section. Um, so it's, it's, always been, it's always been a goal of mine. Um, throughout my military career, I've always kind of looked at that job and with, with wonder, as I think many infantrymen do, um, just because it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting job. It's a dangerous job, certainly. Um, but what, what snipers do is, is remarkably difficult, you know, because it is a, it, your, your primary job is to kill, right? Where, where infantry isn't necessarily, it's, I don't know if that's your primary job, because your, your primary job I think as infantry, as I've been infantry for 14 years, is to engage the enemy. That doesn't necessarily mean kill. Sometimes it means suppress. Sometimes it means to fix them. Sometimes it means to uh, distract them, deny them. It means all sorts of different things. But a sniper's primary role is to engage enemies and destroy targets of opportunity, key targets, and you know, engage people, to kill people, kill vehicles. Um, from with long range precision rifle fire. And so it's, it's an interesting job that I, I chose early on. And I, I really stepped into my military career with this, this desire to do marksmanship. And I think where that kind of came from is when I came home from uh, basic training, I, I picked up a, a Remington 700 for $400. Um, a good one too, it was like one of the, the heavy barrels um, back then. And so you think of like how long ago that was of like, you can't get a Remington 700 now for $400. Um, you know, and, and I, that was back in 2008. And I picked up that rifle and I started teaching myself how to shoot long range. You know, it started at the 300 yard mark because that's how far I was taught to shoot in basic training. And I started just walking it out. I started digging in. I started understanding more about ballistics and more about how the rifle functions, you know, internal, external ballistics, terminal ballistics, and developing that understanding. And it, it became this, what it felt like was this first opportunity for me to learn something 100% for me. You know, I stepped into the military because kind of in direct opposition to what my dad did, right? Of like, I, I can't do it. So I'm just going to use this to die. Well, you know, I did a lot of things back then in that early adulthood where I looked at my life and I said, how would I make my dad happy? Or how would I make my father proud? Um, and it was completely unhealthy, 
until then, until that long range shooting mentality kind of came to a point where this was something that I found that was, was deeply peaceful to me. You know, even if it was for a couple seconds when I was sitting behind the rifle in the grass and I'm, you know, feeling everything around me, controlling my breath, you know, because I didn't understand back then that controlling your, your breathing and your heart rate is one of the best ways to control your physiology, right? Especially after trauma. Well, I never recognized that until, you know, I started studying this stuff and, and started working with people, but I was doing that when I was out there shooting all day long. And that's what I would do. It would take a whole day, you know, eight to 12 hours. I'd be in the 95 degree sunlight in a, a you know, either a cow pasture, or a, a, a field of corn, and I'd be shooting all day. Um, and that was, that was joy to me. That was peace to me. Um, and I think I just relished that idea looking into becoming a sniper. And ultimately I was able to do that in 2021, but I never really cared about being a sniper. I just cared about shooting and, and that was just another path to it. So I never really stopped shooting and, you know, I never stopped shooting. Um, but that was, that was the, the biggest connection for it. And I, you know, even my first deployment, they, they gave me a sniper rifle. They gave me an M14 with a, with a scope on it and told me, you're our designated marksman now. And I was like, sweet, I'll, I'll do that. You know, and I was, I, I embraced it fully. Can you tell me a little bit about that first deployment? Cause it just sounded the way that you presented it, that that first deployment may have been a, a turning point for you. It certainly was, you know, it was, I think it was my, my first soiree with real, uh, tangible death, um, you know, and, and with that comes the opposition of life, right? And so that, that first, the first deployment was the Kunar province, Afghanistan. And for context, that's the same place where Dakota Myers got his medal of honor. It's the same place Marcus Luttrell got his medal of honor, um, at the time in 2012, when I went, three out of the four medals of honor that were earned in Afghanistan were earned in Kunar province, Afghanistan. So we were walking into a place that was lethal, to say the least. You know, it was, it had the highest, um, at the time, it had the highest potential for, um, if you were wounded in Afghanistan, in that province, you had the highest chance of being uh, an amputee. Um, just because of the amount of uh, IEDs that they they placed in that in that province, and so I was excited. You know, I had no idea what I was getting into, but I was I was walking into this deployment with excitement because I was like, maybe this is it, maybe this is the one. You know, and and I didn't realize what I would see. You know, I saw I saw guys dead, nearly. You know, I, I saw guys that eventually died. Um, you know, guys coming off of uh, helicopters with no arms, no legs. I, I saw one guy walk off a helicopter with half a half a head, basically. He had his cranium, uh, you know, it was a flat spot. He had a, a bandage over it to stop it from from dust from getting in there. But he, I mean, his half of his cranium was flat because the either the IED or the RPG, I can't remember what it was, had blown that piece of his skull off, but he was walking and talking, you know, and, and when you start to see that stuff, um, you start to see or recognize this, you know, this conceptualization of life and of death, right? Of not only how fragile life is, but also how tough human beings can be um, without even intending it. I think we just we don't even know we want to survive that bad. Um, and so it's, it's remarkably hard to kill a human being. Um, we're just hardy. We're, we're, we're tough beings. Um, and, and when you really see what a human being can go through like that, it really changes your perspective on life and death. Um, and that's what it did for me is like, obviously I saw trauma overseas. Um, you know, I, and not only that, but like, I was just put under stress for 11 months, you know, high amounts of stress. That's what 
a combat zone does to you, regardless of where you are. I don't care if you're on the FOB or not. Um, and so I came home from that deployment just one unscathed. So I wasn't thrilled about that, but I felt invincible as well. So it was an interesting place for me to be. And no, no sooner had I come home three days after I came home, I tore my ACL doing a, you know, teaching jujitsu. Um, and so being on leave as I was, the army took me from my home and put me in Fort Knox for seven months. Um, I expected it to be longer, but they didn't tell me that they just, they didn't tell me how long it was going to be. They just told me you're here indefinitely until you, until you heal. And I don't think people realize what it's like to step home, step onto your home soil, feel what it's like to be home, and then to be immediately turned around and told to go to a place that is not home and be alone, you know, especially after deployment, especially after seeing the, the difference between life and death as I did. Um, and, and they put me in this place of, I was in my own room for, you know, 23 hours a day. Um, I was not sleeping for 23 hours a day. I was sleeping for one hour a day because, you know, that's the habit I built in Afghanistan because I needed to, you know, because I was working 20 to 22 hours a day in Afghanistan and that didn't leave a whole lot of time for sleep. So I got really comfortable with that. Um, but my body didn't. You know, that's when the first time I really started understanding that like, they started talking to me about PTSD, you know, like trauma, like what, well, what's that? I don't really, I keep, people keep saying it and people keep telling me not to, not to talk about it because it'll just make me stay in whatever place I'm at longer. Um, and so like this culture of denial of PTSD kind of caught up with me all in one moment of like, they defined PTSD for me. And I was like, well, shit, I had that in childhood, you know, like I was, I was feeling that at seven years old after my dad died, like this isn't a new feeling for me. And then they started talking to me about um, like, here are the, here, here's what happens to your body after PTSD. Here's what happens to your body after extended amounts of PTSD. And I'm like, well, that's not good. You know, like, and so I started, um, it, it was my first recognition of it, but I didn't accept it. You know, I just didn't like it because I was looking at other people, you know, my roommate had been blown up in a, in a, I can't remember a Husky and a Husky is a single man, uh, MRAP that is literally designed for finding mines. And so it's literally designed to blow up. Well, his got blown up 35 feet up a mountain from the road. And that's how big the, the IED was. So it broke his back. It broke his, um, broke one of his legs, um, you know, broke his hip bone, um, severe PTSD and severe TBI. So he had all sorts of issues. He, he couldn't, he couldn't sit in his room with the lights off, you know, with, when the, when the sun was out with his shades closed without wearing sunglasses because light bothered him so much because of this, this situation. And so I'm looking at that and I'm like, I'm here for an ACL reconstruction because my dumbass had someone tear my ACL in a jujitsu class. And I'm sitting here with this guy. And I felt, you know, the idea of me feeling like I was in the right place was just not there. You know, I, I just didn't feel comfortable there. I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. So that didn't help, but it, you know, it kind of went back to the idea of, you know, pain. Okay. Well, you're going to take this pain and you're going to, you're going to get out of here. You're going to, you're going to make, you're going to take your steps and you're going to get out of here because you don't need to be here. So why waste anyone's time? And so I did that, you know, I, I, I took a year long recovery or what was supposed to be. And the doctors and the physical therapists were like, honestly, you're, you're doing everything right to where you can get out of here in six months. So I, that first month I, you know, hung out ready for surgery, I had the surgery, and then I did everything I could within those six months to make sure I was ready to go as soon as possible. And they got me out in six months from that point. It's so only spent seven months out of what was potentially going to be 12 to 13 months of recovery. And that's when I got home and I was just baffled. You know, I was, I was lost. 
yeah, I was, I was sitting there thinking like, what do I do with all of this? You know, because no one understands it. You know, even I, I imagine you get that as, as being a firefighter of like, you walk back into a family environment or f- with friends and they're talking about things that matter to them. And you're like, none of that matters to me. Like I, I watched guys die overseas or I watched this happen or, you know, my roommate in, in Fort Knox is, is never going to be able to walk the same again. So he might not be able to take off sunglasses outside again and enjoy the beauty of the world again. You know, I'm, I'm thinking all of these profound and life and death focused thoughts where everybody's just sitting there like, you know, what are we going to have for breakfast? And I'm thinking about suicide, you know, and that, that profound difference in people was so isolating at that point where for two, two to three years after that deployment, it all kind of caught up with me in, in 2015. And that's when, um, everything kind of came to a point of, I don't want to be here anymore. And I'm tired of, clearly I'm not deploying anytime soon because at that point I had torn my other ACL twice. Um, so I had two reconstructions for ACLs in three years, you know, three surgeries. And so I'm just sitting there like, I had one, I don't know how I'm in the army. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this anymore um, because I'm on my third surgery and I don't know if they're going to keep me in or not. And this is the thing that mattered to me. On top of that, I had just broken up with my ex-girlfriend and I was just in this place of extreme despair, of depression, of, you know, anxiety, you know, all the trauma was kind of bubbling up. And I'm like, I'm just wasting everyone's time. And so I went home and, you know, that was, that was the last time I had ever put a gun to my head. You know, I, I remember sitting on the floor of my hallway with a Glock 34 in my hand with a one, one round in it, thinking, let's put a round through my medulla oblongata and get it over with. So I never have to deal with this in, anymore, you know, and it was, it was that moment when, when the barrel touched my neck, because I put it right behind my ear. I remember this still. That cold ring of the barrel just caught me by surprise, I think. And it, and it pushed me to think of a very specific question. Why are you, why are you the way that you are? Like, why are you here right now? You know, and that, that question kind of made me hesitate for a second. I'm, I'm glad it did because I was, I was about as close as you could come. You know, that, that triggers a two and a half to three and a half pound trigger. And I was, I wasn't far off from that, you know? Um, but that question caught me for a second and it made me start thinking about all of these things that, that I had learned throughout the years, all of these things about PTSD, all of these things about, you know, neural pathways about, you know, cause you learn about neural pathways and shooting. You also learn about it in talking about PTSD and what are triggers and what are traumas and all of these different scenarios. And I really just had to, I put the gun down and just cried. You know, I just, I just let out all of the, all of the emotions that were in there, you know, at that moment. And I took three days to answer that question. You know, why am I here? Why am I the way that I am right now? Um, I thought that was fair to myself. And I realized it was, it was all based on silence. You know, I had never, I had never really spoken to anybody about it. I had never really talked or exposed that I feel this way. Um, and so it, it made me kind of rethink emotions. It made me rethink what I thought I knew um, because I've always been a, a thinker. I've always been a guy that likes to be right. Um, and I think that, that was the first time I really looked at myself and said, you know, Dylan, maybe you're fucking wrong for a moment. And, and maybe you need to rethink this. And maybe you need to go find answers for questions you don't think you've ever asked yourself before. And that's kind of where, you know, you said 2019 was your year. Well, 2015 was mine, you know, and, and I started that process of stepping outside of myself and really thinking differently, right? Because that's what I had been so focused on the negativity of my life that I'd never bothered to look at what 
anything had done for me. Like, what were the positives of all this? What were, you know, I was just so focused on this was negative. This was destructive. This was the worst thing, you know, and, and it all just brought me to a point of, okay, well, there's no point, you know, and, and I didn't like that clearly. And so I rethought it. And that's kind of where I'm at now is that I've taken all of what I used to think and I've redeveloped an understanding of how to think about it. Um, and it's, I, I don't think it's far off for anyone to kind of step into that and actually do that. It's just a, a remarkably hard process and you have to justify why it's important to you. You know, I got the impression just from our earlier conversation and, and this one that that first deployment wasn't the only deployment you went on. Nope. How many deployments have you been on so far? So I've, I've been on two, both to uh, the first one was to Kunar and Kabul. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time in Kabul. The second one was 100% in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, and so the, the last one was 2019. Um, I came home and that's when I started kind of started my business, started my book, started my podcast, started my, um, my TikTok career, my influencing if you will. Um, and yeah, the, the, the differences in those deployments are immense. I mean, just when I walked into the 2019 deployment, it was just a different, I was a different animal. I was a different human being. Um, I was so well prepared that when I came home, you know, I maybe spent a month kind of in that transition period of, you know, this is weird. I don't like it. I'm not happy hundred percent here, but it, it took me a month to kind of fall back into, I'm okay at home. I'm okay with this transition here. I, you know, I'm okay with, you know, a kid yelling and screaming or, you know, causing a ruckus or seeing, you know, seeing trash on the ground on the road, you know, or, or anything that felt weird. Um, you know, all of those, those triggers that came from after my first deployment weren't there, like they were on the second one, or I'm opposite, like they were on the first one. Wondering what that looked like, what that growth process looked like, and, and how much of that is in your book? Well, I, it will never all be in my book, because, you know, you can't, you can't put into words what emotions teach you, right? Um, emotions are, a remarkable hidden gem, I think, and especially our society, we like to, you know, eliminate the idea of emotions. We need to be unemotional about everything. Um, and that just doesn't work because emotions are so fundamental in, in life and in communication, right? Even here, right? And in, in these conversations, what you don't see is the undertone of feeling that I'm feeling, right? To just be able to express this stuff you know, you know, maybe you see it, but listeners don't always see it is that to just express this stuff, what you don't realize is that there's two years of practice of management and regulation of emotions. That's just talking about it on a podcast that goes to hundreds and thousands of maybe millions of people. I don't know, but that doesn't include this, the, the five years before this of work right, of development, of knowledge, of growth, of reading, of listening, of watching videos, you know, it's, there's so much to, to put into this one moment where I'm sitting here talking to you about the story. There's regulation here. I couldn't do this 12 years ago. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the emotional control. If you had told me to tell you about suicide 12 years ago, I would have been, I would have lied to you. I would have been like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You'd be like, but your dad died of suicide, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, he did. But uh, what are you talking about? Right? If you had accused me of, of wanting to commit suicide 12 years ago, I would have lied to you to your face and you would have known it because I couldn't control it. You know, it's like, if people, if people knew the question to ask back then, right? Which nobody seemed to know or nobody had the courage enough to ask me, I would have not been able to control my emotional output to answer that question, to lie even. But it, 
What is the question? Well, I mean, there are many questions that you could ask me back then, which I would have been like, I would have broken down in some way of like, you know, even the question of, do you think about suicide? I, you know, if you would have asked me that 12 years ago, I would have been, I, I don't know what I would have done. Well, just for a second, while we're on this topic, because I don't think people really realize how important that is. Yeah. And it's a difficult question to ask for anybody. When, if you have that gut feeling that a person that you care about is considering suicide, just ask them. Yeah. Are you considering killing yourself? Have, have you been thinking, do you have a plan? Like being very upfront and forward with that person can make a huge difference. And, and what I'll add to that, because obviously this is what I deal with a lot, right? I deal with people that want to commit suicide and they come to me with this willingness of wanting to talk about it because the content that I make kind of disarms that conversation. When you ask a question like that and you don't have that kind of scenario where someone's willing to talk to you, when you ask a question like that, you have to be 100% uh, kind of ready for the answer to be whatever it is, right? It, it could be a lie, could be the truth, right? Whatever it is, your job is not to make it better for them. Your job is to help them feel heard and understood. And so I think that's where a lot of people kind of struggle with this question is that they feel like when they ask the question, they have to then make things better for that person. And that's not your job, right? I, I look at this from my own perspective and from my dad's perspective. It was never my job to heal my father. It was never my mom's job. It was never my sister's job. It was never anybody else's job, but my father's. Just like it was never anyone else's job to heal me. It was mine, right? And so when you, when you step into a question like that, you step in, one, knowing you can't save people, and two, knowing that all you can do to help them save themselves is to help them feel heard and just listen, right? Like if, if you feel this way, I'm, I'm here to just listen. I'm not here to solve your problems. I don't know if I even can, but I'm willing to hear all of the shit that you've been through just so you have a place to know you can come and share, right? Because that's what happened to me. It's like, and it wasn't even logical to me. Like in, in my life, I was, I had a mother that would listen to me. I even had a sister that would listen to me. I had friends that would listen to me. But in my mind, I had built this, this, this shell and this force field of shame and guilt and regret that was untouchable, right? I, I didn't care how much you told me, right? I didn't care how empathetic you were or how much you helped me. I was never going to relinquish that stuff because I felt like I would be judged no matter what. I, I didn't, you know, and, and so you can't help someone that's unwilling to be helped, right? And so part of, part of asking that question is so fundamentally important is simply developing the willingness before creating the help, right? Develop trust. And how do you, how do you build trust in my mind? It's listen, right? You craft a relationship before you ever craft any form of help and support. Listening comes before everything to me. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, I guess I should have prefaced that with, so towards the end of my career, funny enough, I, I was struggling with PTSD myself and felt like maybe if I helped other people with PTSD, you know, in the process, I could feel good about my own shit. And I became a, a critical incident stress uh, management, like peer counselor, mm -hmm. went through all the training. And when you get called out to, you know, talk with a crew um, about some, something really bad, um, 
your primary function is to listen and to offer tools to help them get back to homeostasis, you know, because they're going to experience, you know, that, that fight or flight, uh, you know, reptilian brain reaction to, to a horrible situation, but that, that reaction can last. And if you don't do something to get yourself back to homeostasis, it, it fills up your cup. And then you got the next incident and the next incident and the next traumatic event. And before you know it, you're just overflowing and you're in that fight or flight response constantly. And so when we would get called to, to sit with a crew and offer tools, just create an environment where you know, we could listen to them. And a lot of times you can kind of pick up that, um, maybe you suspect that they're in a really dark place. Yeah. They've had it. It's not hard to see it. And when you're, asking them that question in private you have you know i had tools at my disposal to offer them but it was the act of asking the question after you've already created that that safe space for them where you've already listened to everything maybe they didn't even talk talk to them off to the side and you pose that question maybe just to see their response they might lie yeah and i would say actually yeah like (laughs) i don't know that anybody's ever told me the truth on that you know (laughs) yeah um it's the it's the sense of safety there right of and i think maybe this is this is part of the problem sometimes is that when someone in that position asks that question they don't know what happens with the response right they don't know what the protocol is where you say i'm going to take this back to my superior and or your superior and let them know that you're feeling this way because that might be you know, and, and it's not necessarily true or not. It's just that yeah. they don't know what can then come from that answering that question, honestly, you know, and that's what I think is so freeing about having me as, as kind of what I do. Like I'm a mental health coach. I have no authority anywhere to do anything to you. If you answer the question, are you thinking about suicide? And you say, yes, right. I have nothing, right. And one that's quite dangerous for me because, well, it's also quite dangerous for you. Um, But at the same time, because that risk is there, for me, it takes it off of you. And so the freedom to share becomes almost a a healing development. And so the, the willingness to push into that risk of, I have nothing I can do to, to take this anywhere and, and show anyone or reveal this to anyone. I can't have a wealth welfare check done on you because I don't know your address. I don't know who you are. All I know is that you came to me online and said, this is what I'm feeling. The only thing I can do is listen to you. That's it. And I, I make that abundantly clear that I have all of this stuff to lose in this conversation. And I think in those personal conversations, because I've done this in the military too, is that the military has its own policies on this of like, you have to take it to a superior. And, and that's a remarkably, like, it denies people the, the will to answer. And so then what happens, you know, like, that's the, the hard part is that you, you might have to look at it and say, do I do what the policy tells me? Or do I do what the the person in front of me trusts me to, to do if hold this, what is trust? It's holding it in, 
keeping it to yourself. It's not telling everybody else because this person doesn't want everybody told because that can build more trust and or, or more isolation and more disconnection because the one thing that I think all of the reasons why we commit suicide, it, they all have one thing in common and that's disconnection. And if you build that gap of disconnection, it, like what are you doing, right? You're not solving your problem. And so it's it's really important that when you ask that question, you come from a standpoint of you've got no horse in the game. You know, you have no horse in the race where you say, I can't do anything with this, right? I'm not going to do anything with this. And you mean it, right? Well, that, that was the benefit. And I don't know how it is in other organizations, but within the one that I was in, the CISM team was uh, connected to the international union so there are resources through the international union any of the peer counselors they their duty is to that individual mm -hmm. whatever it, it's actually like that you know attorney client privilege doctor patient privilege whatever they say to you is between those two and now right my position would be to provide you with the resources. Here's the steps that you got to take. Right. It's up to you to take them. Yep. But I, you know, I don't want to see you in a coffin. I don't want to have to go tell your family that yeah. this is what happened. I, I know that with, the proper steps we can get you to a better place where you're not thinking about this seriously right and and so yeah i i would say that if it's somebody that you care about and you don't have the tools to approach them with that question find somebody that does have the tools yeah you know um there's no there's no policy that makes this any easier Right. Like it's, you know, when, when you talk about like the attorney client privilege, I like that like idea. Um, Cause that's what I have is like, I have this mental health, you know, client, a privilege of saying it's not my job to tell anybody else. Right. And so that is really beneficial in my scenario, but that's not necessarily the case, right? There's no rule book that says like, everybody's going to trust exactly the same way as, as people trust me. I put myself out there in a sense where people genuinely know they can trust me that I'm not taking your information, sharing it with other people. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not telling anybody. I'm not telling your family. I am a, a vault for you. Right. And that's what I am. Not everybody's like that. Not everybody has the strength of, of what I know I can handle of if one of my clients comes to me, tells me this stuff and then ends their life. As, as tragic as that would be, I know I would have to move on from that. I know I can live through that. That's hard, right? Not everybody can do that. And so not everybody does do that. Some people will, instead of making the decisions that I do of taking that risk onto themselves, they would offload it and say, hey, please go do a welfare check on this. Or the organization takes that choice away from them. And so it's a, there's no right answer here. It's just, it's, it sucks, but connection is always going to be to me the best way to move forward no matter what and, and you you said something that, uh that keyword trust and in, in my experience when when i've been in that dark place part of that disconnection that isolation that feeling of hopelessness i mean i i don't know that there was really anybody that I felt I could trust. You know what yeah. I mean? When, when you're in that space, I, not that you don't want to trust somebody, but the ability to actually trust somebody to, to do what is best for you right. or to keep what you have to say just between the two of you, you know, that I think that's a, a hard ask a lot of yeah. times. It can be. 
That's, that's why it's, you know, it's funny because people will come to me and they'll, they'll meet with me for the first time. And they, and I always ask, how are you? Right. I, I ask you, how are you first? And I ask, ask, last question I ask you is how are you as well? Um, and I ask, how are you the first time? And they always give me this. I'm fine. I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm good. Right. This generic answer. And I'm like, no, stop. Right. Like that's, I, I didn't ask for that. I asked, how are you really like, what, what's really going on? And, and then it's this, maybe, maybe it's just like for the first time they, they see this genuine curiosity where it's not this genuine, I'm not coming at this from a judgmental place. I'm like, I'm genuinely asking you your, your opinion on how you are doing not in this passing form. It's this moment of, I want to know. And I, I almost put forth my effort to say, I really want to know, how are you? Don't bullshit me. Right. Like, and, and, and some people, some people break down, you know, some people cry like immediately without even telling me anything. They just cry. They just feel things. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, and I, I make that environment acceptable. I don't care if you're, you know, a 40 year old man that's been through all sorts of shit and you like you, you're a big, strong strapping dude. Right. Or you're a 27 year old divorcee, uh, a wife that's going through whatever. Like, I don't care who you are. Like your ability to feel is, is a function of your life. And I, I try to make that a, a note you know, a, a functioning piece of our conversation. Um, and people don't know how to do it. Right. And so by the time, you know, when I ask, how are you the first time, the answer undoubtedly, when we actually get to it is I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm fearful. But by the time we get to the end of the conversation, it's, I feel relaxed. I feel comfortable. I feel, you know, it's not always happy, but there's, there's peace by the end, because it's, they've recognized that by the end of the conversation with me, I don't care who you are. I don't care the choices you've made in your life. I don't care if you've messed up. I don't care if you've done well. All I care about is that by the end of that conversation, you find a way to feel comfortable in this space with me. Right. And I do everything I can to make that comfortable, you know, because it's connection right? It's, I have no right to look at you, Dave, and say, your life is right or wrong. Your choices are right or wrong. I have no, I have no choice. I have no idea of what you've been through, right? Because you're the only one that's lived 100% of your life. I've never lived your life. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know exactly your truth or not. Um, and so I can't, with any, with any re respect for myself, look at you and say, this choice was right or wrong, because you might have 32 years of trauma behind it or 40 years or 16 years or two years of things that I have no idea are affecting how you make this choice, right? Not only like just cognitively you thinking about it, but physically triggers and traumas and things that say to your body, this is what feels right to us right now. I have no idea. So why can I feasibly step into a conversation and say, you know, what you did there was stupid, you know, what you did there, maybe you should just get over it. Or these things that are just like, people bring these to me. And I'm like, that is preposterous for someone to say that. I'll never say that to you. Right. And I, and I live within this idea as a mental health coach that I have no idea what's right or wrong for you until you help me understand you. And we start to understand what's right or wrong for you. And it's completely disarming, right? To where people share all sorts of things. And I'm like, cool, I doesn't bother me, right? Like, I'm just here, I'm here to listen. And like, I want to empower you to develop your own sense of integrity and your own sense of right, wrong. And I'll ask you questions, right? And they're oftentimes questions that nobody's ever been asked before. One of the things that we talked about was, um... Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the ACE study, yep. Adverse Childhood Experiences. I've got uh, some resources on my page that kind of outlines that study. And really, 
just for those listening, if you haven't heard me talk about it before, uh, I do discuss it in many other episodes, but for all of us walking around that have had bad stuff happen to us in our childhood, you're not alone. And statistically speaking, most of the people around you have had pretty bad things happen in, in, in their childhood at some point or another. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's a, a fact. And yeah. you're, not, you're not alone. You're not as isolated as you feel. And there are, there are resources out there that, that can help you get through whatever you're struggling with right now, get you to a place where you're not considering a permanent solution for a temporary problem. I'd like um, to, Dave, if you don't mind me interrupting, I'd like to, to point out something about, about this, right? Like what you, what you just said, right? Silence comes from the environments that teaches us that speaking isn't beneficial, right? And if there's anything that you take away from this interview and, and this conversation that me and Dave are having, it's you are the authority on yourself and you have to look at your own silence and understand who taught you to be silent and how you then look forward at people like myself, like Dave, like your friends, like your family, and determine who might not fit that mold. Because there's people out there that can have conversations with you. But it's that silence and in your perception of it, right? Your context teaches you how to determine whether you actually have the courage to speak about your problems or not. And you can. And there are people out there that do understand them. But if you always apply that mold of how people taught you to be silent because it wasn't beneficial for you. And that's understandable. That makes sense. It's rational. It's not necessarily logical, right? Logic requires you to think outside the box and understand, well, Dylan or Dave doesn't think like that. They desire a conversation with people. They want to learn. They want to hear you. They want to understand what makes you you but if you never step out step outside of that situation that silence becomes dangerous for you and it always will be and you know it comes to this point of what dave's talking about of choosing that permanent solution you know and i i can't i've been there i, I know what that permanent solution feels like and i i'll never take away the power of those feelings but i can promise you that there are people that are willing to sit with you and listen to you and have those conversations. The hard part about that is don't necessarily trust that they know what's best for you, but you have to be able to listen to what might be wrong for you right now. You know, you have to be willing to, you know, and I mean that word willing to look at your choices, your focuses your perceptions and understand that they might be wrong for you, right? They might be dangerous to you. Um, and that requires a whole lot of tenacity and stubbornness that, you know, I know most of all of us have, I think all of us do, but it requires a little bit of humility to say, yeah, I've made some mistakes here. I've really made some mistakes here, you know, and, and to step into that willing, willingly and say, I hope I can find someone that's not going to judge me for making those mistakes. And that's me. That's what I do, right? Like, I don't give a shit what mistakes you made. I'm all about the person you're going to be. Right. And so, you know, I just, I just wanted to put that out because I think it's so important to understand like how that silence plays into this, this massive issue that so many people face. For those listening that, that want to connect with you, or want to purchase your book? What's what's the best? What's the best place to to connect with you? I I know you're all over TikTok, um, but your website where where would you send somebody to purchase your book? 
probably the best, the best way to get my book or, or consume my book is through audible, right? I it's on Amazon. It's on target.com. It's on barnesandnoble.com. But I think I, I read the book for audible and I added probably an hour's worth of like kind of off script stuff because I did the audible version after I wrote the book. So there's more stuff in the audible version. If you like listening, I wrote it. Um, I read it. Um, I performed it. So it's, it's there for you. I think that's the best way gives you the most bang for your buck. Um, but it's everywhere else. Um, but if you're looking for me and to connect with me anywhere, um, you can go to my website and that will diversify my portfolio, right? I've got my podcast on there. I've got my TikTok, my Instagram, my Facebook, all sorts of different ways you can connect with me. Um, but if you want to talk to me, schedule session, it's through my website. It's very simple, free consultation. I, I just want to help, right? And so even if it's, even if the only thing you ever do is talk to me for the 30 minute consultation, I'm okay with that. Because if I can help you for that, I can, I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. I do this for for the benefit of society more than I do it for the money. And so obviously I need money to live, but I want to make sure you're okay. That's, that's my goal. Well, brother, I really appreciate it. I will have links to your website uh, in the show notes. For those of you listening, check out his book, get audible. Um, man. Dude, I, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been a, a powerful conversation. Thank you so much, man. Of course. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.